I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Judy Mandel, author of White Flag. Raising the white flag is a universal symbol of surrender, a symbol of the hope that our vulnerability will be shielded from further harm and we can finally lay down our burden. What separates those who summon the inner strength to ask for help from those who can never unfurl their banner? These are the questions that haunt Judy Mandel in her searingly honest memoir about loss and addiction. She shares this further explanation or exploration of her family, so movingly portrayed in her previous New York Times bestselling memoir, Replacement Child. She's a former reporter and marketing executive and holds an MFA in creative writing from Stony Brook University. Her essays, articles, and short stories have appeared on Kevlar.com, 34th Parallel, The Tishman Review, Connecticut Life, ASJA Monthly, The Southampton Review, American Writers Review, and many other publications. Welcome to the show, Judy. Nice to have you on today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, as I understand it, you have said that in writing this memoir, this whole experience has forced you to question um, everything you've ever known. In a way, that's true, um, because in, in the writing, I found out a lot of things about even my family that I didn't know. I wasn't um, aware of some of the things that, that had happened. There were things my my sister, who's the mother of uh, Cheryl, who I talk about in the book, um, I thought we were very close. It turns out she didn't let me into a lot of a lot of things that were that were going on. A lot. You talk about a lot of these things. Obviously, the book is about Cheryl and her addictions, and you're trying to help her, um, and Cheryl's many layers of deception. But what were some of those secrets? Because they were, see, I mean, they obviously they were huge surprises to you and had a huge impact on you. And I, I assume an, an well, impact what, on the, some yeah. of the things that I I discovered also were, you know, the really the complexities of of substance use disorder and, you know, how that related to my family and, um, you know, some of the, the ideas of transgenerational trauma, which I really was unaware of, even though I realized, you know, later that this related to our, the, the, um, the focus of my first book, Replacement Child, which is the plane crash that killed one of my sisters and badly injured um, my sister Linda at two years old who was the mother of Cheryl. And so that, that trauma filters through generations, much as um, survivors of the Holocaust, which, you know, some of the research that I found, you know, was done in relation to survivors of the Holocaust and generations and, and how that affects um, generations, you know, through, um, through, you know, like I said, generations. So, so that was really one of the huge takeaways that I had in, in doing the research for the book was, was that trauma doesn't go away. It, um, it does, it needs to be addressed and it's something that will show up in different ways and show you who you are. Yeah. Well, I think that that's an important piece of the book because I think uh, like as you're talk as you're describing it, Many of us think that, you know, when, tra- tra- when we have traumas in our life, or uh, we, in this case, Cheryl is addicted, in the, uh, uh, 
that it, it comes from somewhere, that it didn't just start here with us, that, as you say, transgenerational. That, what, the trauma can go for three generations, but I assume it cannot go for three generations if, as you say, we address it in the beginning, if we are aware that uh, the trauma has occurred and we, and we deal with it so that it doesn't have to do that. We don't have to pass it on from generation to generation. I think one of the things that, that feeds that is silence. And I, I feel like even after, you know, going through writing this book, that um, silence is another trauma in a, in a family. Um, my, my family didn't talk about anything <laughs> about, uh, we didn't talk about the fact that my, my sister Linda had, you know, scars and she would be treated differently and what, you know, maybe she would have benefited from some therapy at that point. We didn't talk about the plane crash. Um, We didn't talk about my sister who died. There were so many facets of that that were, um, you know, not topics that could be addressed. How did you not, I want to just stop you there, because how did you not talk about it? Because it's it's there. It's, It's there with all of you. Like, what kinds of, or what kind of energy did it take to not talk about it? To not talk about the It takes the a lot crash. of energy. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a great deal of energy to ignore what's right in front of you. Um, and I think that, that that takes away from understanding. You know, many times, you know, writing both of these books and, you know, most of my family has already passed. And so writing, writing these books, I wished, well, I wish you were here so we could talk about this because <laughs> we should have talked about it when you were here. Um, and I, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think there are, you know, as I talk to people, that families, you know, brush things away that they, they don't want to address. I mean, I think everybody has somebody in their family that nobody wants to talk about their problems or nobody yeah, wants that, to address. Yeah. It's too painful or they feel it's too painful or it's going to open up another can of worms and it's best just to stay away from it. But you never really can stay away from it because it really is part of you. So who would you who do you talk to or now? I mean, you said a lot of your family has died. They're not here anymore. You wish you'd talk to them. But who are you talking to? Well, you're talking to the world now, I guess, in writing these two books. But um, well, also just because they're just because they're dead doesn't mean I don't talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just I'm. I'm joking. Oh, that's good. But, but seriously, <laughs> but seriously, I found myself kind of yelling at my sister while I was writing this book. You know, why didn't you tell me this? What, you know, why couldn't we have, we could have addressed it together. It would have been easier. I mean, I'm lucky I, I have good friends. I have a wonderful husband who, you know, I can always talk to, um, who I did throughout writing this book. Um, so I am, I, I feel lucky in that way. Um, and, and I think it was also a sign of the times, you know, um, the, this plane crash happened in 1952. And I think a sign of the times was that we didn't talk about things. You know, a lot of things um, just go on with your life. And um, if you don't talk about it, it's not there. Um, so that I think, as I said, I don't think I'm alone in, in that. Even, even in present day, people, um, it's hard. It's hard to address things. And it's, much it's hard, and I think you're right. The that. context, we have to look at the context, as you're saying. 1952, actually, we, ta- we didn't talk about a lot of things. If you got cancer, you didn't talk about cancer. No one, that was a hush-hush right. topic. Uh, disease, all of those That's kinds right. of things. So things have changed, I think, in, in a good way, obviously, that we can talk about these things. 
but and all and as you say, we all share. Um, all, all most of us have can share traumas in our lives. Obviously, your book is a New York Times bestselling. Um, was a bestseller. The first book, Replacement Child. So everybody is listening and relating to it. Um, let's can we talk about the specifics of like what you uncovered? You know, in terms of of Cheryl and her addiction, because I know addiction is one of the themes of the sure. book. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, well, some of the things that I didn't know that she had a depression problem, um, which, you know, I did learn when I found her in prison. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know she had been sexually abused as a child um, by a stepfather. I didn't, I, I, I sort of thought maybe that happened, but nobody talked about it. Did you know him? Um, and I did finally, I did know him. Yeah. I, I didn't know that um, my sister had him arrested. I didn't know that had happened. Um, and I didn't understand um, the level of shame that surrounded Cheryl's substance use disorder in the whole family. I didn't understand, you know, why it was, you know, a lot of these details were kept from me um, to, you know, protect me. I know my sister, that was, that was her goal was to protect me from, from the truth. And also there's such a shame and stigma around substance use disorder. And, you know, then what happens after, because of substance use, you know, the the prison and that kind of thing, rehabs. I knew she had gone to a rehab. I didn't know she had been to several rehabs. Um, I didn't know she had been in jail before this. So, so there were a lot of lot of tentacles to this. That Some were, of it is unique to your family, but as I'm listening to you, and I am a social worker, they're not unique. <laughs> that you know, mm-hmm. they're you know that 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 uh, uh, sort of the description of of what happens when you suffer from substance abuse, mm-hmm. the hiding, the shame, the rehab, the, right. you know, and prison, which right. doesn't help. Uh, and it's a whole and circular parents thing. Feel, parents feel that it's their fault. Yeah. So well, even though I know, you know, my sister, you know, did so many things to try to help her, her daughter, she still felt like it was her fault in some way. Um, and so she didn't share that with me. And, and, I, and know, what I'm, about you? I'm How did you feel? Did you feel any that. of it was your fault or did you feel any, did you, you know, any guilt, like, as you said, okay, I knew Cheryl's stepfather, I had a sense, I think you said to me that mm, maybe something wasn't quite right. In the past, I mean, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it at the time. Um, You know, I think my guilt came later, because um, I I did promise, my sister passed away in uh, 2009. And um, when she was when she was dying, I, you know, I said, you know, don't worry, you know, I'm here, I'm going to be there for your girls. And I'll take care of them. And, you know, that's something you, you can't take lightly. And then when Cheryl was in trouble and I found her in prison, it was, you know, right there in my face, what can I do? I need to do, I need to do something. You know, whether I knew the right things to do or not. Um, and uh, strangely, when she was in prison, it was, it was easier to know what to do because, you know, write letters, put money in her commissary, call her, do video chats, you know, assure her that you're there, that you love her. And I think, you know, those, to me, were were the clear-cut, simple things to do. Once she got out, it was much more difficult. 
to understand where she was in her in her journey, really, because I wasn't being told really the truth. And that's that's it's very difficult to address things when you're when you don't really know what's going on. When you don't actually know what you're supposed to be addressing, and and mm-hmm. going back a little bit, like what were some of the warning signs, let's say, of Cheryl's addiction that you think you missed or that you did miss? That's hard. It's a very hard question. It's a good question because people people need to be aware. Um, and I wasn't in her. You know, we we lived far apart for much of their much of her childhood. So I was in Connecticut. She was in Florida which is, you know, quite a distance. So all I knew was, were the things that I was told. And, um, you know, I was told she's, she's a, a voracious reader. She's always got a book in her hands, which was, I thought, great, you know, as a reader and writer. I thought that was a, that was a great time. Um, I do remember my sister saying, well, you know, it seems like it's sort of an escape for her to be in a book all the time. Um, warning signs like the depression, which I didn't know about at the time, but certainly, you know, that was something that needed to be addressed on its own. You know, many times with substance use disorder, and I'm sure you know this as a social worker, it, it starts it starts somewhere, you know, maybe self-medicating, maybe, you know, it can certainly be just to fit in with friends. Um, that can happen too, just, you know, for fun. But often there's another underlying reason, and and not to address those reasons, I think, is a mistake and that is sometimes made um, when people try to address substance use disorder without looking underneath about what what caused this in the first place or what do we need to address at the same time. What's also difficult when you have an addiction problem, and one like Cheryl's, for instance, is that you uh, there's a lot of deception involved. I mean, when you're an addict, you're the, the part of that whole um, process is is being deceptive, deceiving, and uh, it's difficult to kind of plow through that if you're the one who's trying to to help uh, or to help get that person sober. So, I think that's a big issue. Yeah. And this is a person that you love, so you want to believe them when they say, you know, that's all behind me. I'm not using drugs. You know, don't worry. I'm not spending money on things I shouldn't spend money on. You know, I have, or I didn't find out a lot of these things until I I got her her cell phone later on and could see the texts and, and, you know, the contradiction of the, the texts that she would send me and then, you know, a couple minutes later, she would be sending a text to buy drugs, which was heartbreaking. I mean, I, I did—I actually did a whole spreadsheet of times and when things were were texted, and um, I tried to follow up with the actual people that were on it, but I didn't have any luck with that. Um, but just just looking at, you know, when these when these contradictory texts were sent out, you know, just brings it to home what was what was going on that I was not aware of. Um, and maybe, maybe I was naive that, you know, that certainly, certainly, uh, crosses my mind all the time. And, Did you, feel- you know, those, those are things you want to be, you want to be aware of. You want to, you know, be, um, you know, cognizant of what's going on. Did you ever feel duped? Well, later, yes. Later I felt duped when I found out, you know, that this was what was happening at the same time. 
I mean, uh, uh, toward the end, um, you know, I was saying almost every time I talked to her, should I look at rehabs? Is that, is that what we need to do now? And will that help you? And she would assure me, no, that's not my problem. I just need to get back on my feet. I need to find a job. I need to, you know, find a place to live. And so I put my energies into trying to help her do those things. Um, not knowing that, you know, there were still drugs involved. Yeah, what I, I am hearing you say, and I think obviously this is also something that uh, most people, I think, when they're dealing with addiction, have to that deal with, uh, have to experience is that frustration. I mean, it's a constant frustration for parents, loved ones, aunts, uncles, whoever the is close, you know, whoever is close to the person they're trying to help who's addicted. That it's just constantly a series of frustration and. Uh, I don't know whether you did this or not, but getting into counseling or therapy yourself so that you can be as aware as you can be and less frustrated to help so you can help the other person. I think you mentioned uh-huh. uh, you've been to Al-Anon. Yeah, I went to I went to a few meetings um, and um, and afterward, you know, went to a meeting of, of people who had lost um, loved ones to substance use and um yeah, I think those are those are great things to do, certainly. Um, and you know, the frustration. You know, when I talk to people, also, the frustration is really the thing. Well, I did this, this, and this, and then they they went back and you know used drugs. Well, sometimes you can't stop them from using drugs. I think that that has to be that has to be said. Maybe maybe you can't stop them. Maybe you can keep them alive for until they're ready to raise their own white flag, they have to want to do it themselves and let them know you still care about them. You know, these are the things that I I think are very important to keep people alive with um, harm reduction now. Um, If people need clean needles so that they don't die, um, if they need food so that they don't die, try to keep them alive. As long as 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 they're alive, there's hope. Yeah. Well, you talk about, and I think you've had a conversation about this, uh, you know, tough love. I mean, we're sort of getting away from that for a while, for a few years at least. It was tough love. You have to just be tough and, 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 um, it was, it was tough love. My sister did that, um, with Cheryl, I know, um, because she was advised to do that. Um, but I think, you know, they talk about hitting bottom, hitting bottom could be death. That's very likely that that, that could be you know, hitting bottom. And I think you're right. It's shifting um, from that idea of that tough love is going to, is going to help. And, you know, I think the the harm reduction piece is very important now. Also in making treatment more available and accessible and affordable than the drugs are. And that's, I mean, that's a societal and even government, you know, piece of this. To, to make it accessible, medically, you know, assisted treatment is working very well for people along with counseling. Yeah. And, and I haven't, is, sir, haven't heard it said that way. I think get. that's really important. I think that's a really important point, like make the treatment more accessible than the drugs. I mean, right now we're yeah. sort of in where we're in a point where, you know, put people in jail, well, putting people in jail does not help. I, I think that we've had a no. lot of experience over the years and realizing that's not what works and people just and those people who get out of jail go right back on the streets because it doesn't help so right it doesn't help 
And um, even if they are not getting the drugs in jail, which sometimes they are. Many times they are, yeah. Yeah. They're more accessible than than most people I mean, if you know. Look, even, you know, recent recent headlines, if you look at the overdoses in in prisons, you know, obviously they're getting the drugs while they're in prison or jail, either one. But going back a little, okay, let's say before the person, the person is addicted and gets, they have to have access to, to help. Doesn't, yeah. I mean, I know now you've done a lot of research, so don't we have to take a look at those people who are supposedly should be doing the helping, uh, whether it's teachers or doctors or people who are in close contact with a person, not just the family, and can look for the warning signs of, hey, you know, my student or my uh, patient may be into drugs. I mean, I, I don't see doctors doing that too much. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the the training has to be done with all all the levels of contact, especially especially with young people. You know, because that's when it starts, and the 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 younger they start, the harder it is to quit. I mean, I learned that also that their brain chemistry changes, and it gets to be much harder for them, almost uh, impossible. I, and I have an example that I, I've sometimes used, but one of, one of my sons had to have eye surgery and we're in the hospital and he was <clears throat> 12 years old. And the doctor is asking him at 12 with me in the room whether he drinks or takes drugs or has had sex. And I thought, do you really, and, my, and it was going through my head, do you think he would really answer that question uh, in front of me? Oh my you need to, yeah. Yeah. But and I don't think that's changed too much. So there has to be a different way of approaching the problem. And that's, a, you know, that's that's one example. But it, it yeah, um, it should be part of training for teachers and doctors and even pediatricians, I think. And pediatricians, exactly. Um, I think you, you hit on something that's really important. So now, what are you, I know you're doing a lot right now in terms of advocacy uh, for people with addictions. Um, talk to us about that. Well, I, yes, I'm, I'm trying to, especially when I talk to people like you, you know, I try to uh, get those points across. There's, there are some really good organizations. Um, one of them is called Truth Farm and, uh, they originated in upstate New York and they are doing a lot of work, um, working for legislation that will help, um, making things more accessible as we talk about and helping communities to understand what they can do in their community. So that's a great organization. Um, I have decided to, um, with my book, donate part of the proceeds to an organization called, um, um, well, I can't remember the name of them, that, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, does, that does help, <laughs> helps people, helps families more than, you know, not just the addict, but um, it's Magnolia New Beginnings. I'm so sorry. Okay, and um, yep. they were wonderful in talking to me um, about how they help families. Um, I wish I had found them before Cheryl passed away, um, but I did find them afterward. And they're there for people all the time that need help at the moment. Um, they answer their phone. You know, they, they help people find um either if they need a rehab, if they need um, counseling, if they need, you know, medically assisted treatment, they try, to, they try to connect people with the resources they need and also the family support, which I think is really important. 
Um, well, I think the family so support is key. I'm glad you mentioned that one because yeah. that if, 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 you know, yeah. the person is yeah. living within a family, it's a family problem. I mean, it's not just an individual problem. So I think if right. you don't it's deal with the family. It's not just an individual problem. Yeah. So that's And, may, you know, also, you know, there's another thing I'm learning is maybe they don't need a residential rehab. Maybe if they can get medically, you know, MAT, medically assisted treatment with counseling and social services help, maybe that, maybe that's what they need. I think it's an individual thing that needs to be looked at that way. I would agree. You have to assess each family and each individual individually. Absolutely. Maybe even in some of this tele, I just, as you're talking, I'm thinking some of the telehealth, you know, that's can be a piece of it that you actually can bring mm-hmm. the counselor into your home or where you're living because sometimes getting to a counselor, getting to a physician is difficult for a lot of people, right. you know, having right. access. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's a good thing too. Um, yeah, uh, Truth Farm. I just want to make sure I have these. Truth Farm. Yeah, it's uh, it's truthfarm.org that that people can look at. It's uh, farm with a P-H, P-H-A-R-M. And we only have a couple minutes left, so what about your book? I assume we can buy it. I'll let you tell us, but bookstores everywhere. Yeah, it's available anywhere, um, and you can find out more about it. And me at judymandel.com. It's J-U-D-Y. M-A-N-D-E-L dot com. Great having you on the show today. And I learned a lot, a lot of new information. So I hope my listeners did as well. But thanks so much for being on the show. And I've been talking to Judy Mandel. She's the author of White Flag. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 